Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. As of this recording, the holidays are right around the corner, and nothing fits better in a stocking than some freshly canned Brotherwell beer. That's right, all your favorites are back in stock for the holiday season. Pick up a six-pack or two at Brotherwell Brewing on Historic Bridge Street. Brotherwell Brewing, the official beer of the Waco History Podcast. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, Building Waco, architect Milton Scott. So he actually went and climbed up in a tree about two blocks away from the construction site with a pair of binoculars and watched until he convinced himself that yes, the contractor had been cutting corners and then confronted the guy and got it straightened out. Waco architect B.J. Greaves tells us about legendary architect Milton Scott. He designed many well-known Waco landmarks. First Lutheran Church, First Baptist Church downtown, the home that belonged to Madison Cooper. And now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco you may notice some extra sound today, some background, some soccer balls being kicked, some geese we had earlier. <laughs> so we've done a live podcast before, Stephen, where we were outside, but this is a little different, isn't it? It is. Yeah, we're, we're in a completely uncontrolled environment, so <laughs> who knows what might happen in the next hour or so. And we have a very special guest today. So uh, BJ Greaves is something we're not, Randy. He is a Waco native, so to to establish his pedigree right off the bat, but he is an architect here at town. Architects is his his company, and he's he's left his thumbprint all over town in projects that he's worked on. And he's an expert on local architecture. He's principally an expert on uh, Milton Scott, a very important local architect. But he can also talk a little bit about Roy E. Lane, which I know you've been interested in. Yeah, of course. In since we started. So welcome, BJ. Thank you. I'm very very glad to be here and be doing this with you. Appreciate the invitation, and I hope it's uh, hope it's of interest to everyone. Milton Scott, in particular, is a is a character whose career you've done a lot of research on and you've been interested in his work. Uh, let's start by asking, I, I guess, how did you get involved in kind of uh, some of his projects? Well, in, uh, in 1989, I was uh, brought into the project to restore the building and turn it into the Dr. Pepper Museum downtown. And I have a history with that building because my dad worked for Dr. Pepper. Wow. And so as a kid, I would go with him down to the plant periodically, and I would just play 
throughout the building while he was working and other people were, were working. I knew of the building pretty much my whole life. Then the plant closed in 1965. They built a newer plant over on Franklin Avenue and that building sat vacant pretty much from that point on. It was bought and sold and traded back and forth between Baylor University and the Dr. Pepper Company for a while. But ultimately, the Dr. Pepper Company bought it back, wanted to establish a Dr. Pepper Museum here in Waco. Wilton Lanning, who was a, a very close friend of mine, and my dad for that matter, was the founding president of the Dr. Pepper Museum, and he approached me about being involved in the restoration of that building and the uh, museum project, which was done in multiple phases over a period of about 21 or 22 years. So I've never I've never had a single project last for 21 years, but, but that <laughs> one did. They got me involved in the, in the building. Well, uh, Joe Cavanaugh, who was the director of the museum, told me he had found a drawing in a publication of the original building, a floor plan sort of drawing of the original building, and it listed or indicated on the drawing the architect was Milton Scott. And he asked me if I knew who that was. I said, I really don't. So with the help of a little bit of help from Joe, a lot of help from the curator of the museum, Millie Walker, uh, we started researching Milton Scott. In that research, we discovered that Milton Scott's son, uh, John Scott, was still alive and actually living here in Waco. He had had a career as a mechanical engineer in Houston, but he had retired and a year or two before I met him, he had moved back to Waco. And so we, uh, we got to meet John and through him, then got a great deal of information about his father and discovered there were just so many buildings in Waco that Milton Scott had actually designed either as the principal architect or in association with someone else. Luckily, many of these buildings were still around. Joe Cavanaugh asked if I would be interested in authoring a, a book about Milton Scott, and we had so much information that we had gathered, it was a fairly easy thing to undertake. So, so I did, again, with Millie Walker's assistance. Uh, we wrote the book about Milton Scott. Through that, uncovered some other information of some of the other architects in Waco that were sort of already in practice when Milton Scott started and continued in practice after Milton Scott passed away. But that was pretty much how that came about. Mm -hmm. and, and being able to meet John, Milton's son, was a tremendous stroke of luck. And John was such an incredibly delightful man. He was already in his 80s when I met him. I felt like at times I got a little bit of a window into Milton Scott's personality. Mm just through his son. Mm -hmm. His son had had a portfolio of Milton's work, and it was put together in 1932 for a project that Milton Scott was, was submitting a proposal uh, to do. This was a, a new post office in Waco at that time. This is uh, a building that's on 8th and Franklin. Milton Scott did not get the commission to do that project wound up being done by just an in-house architect with the General Services Administration. But the submission that Milton Scott made included a listing of all the buildings he had designed up to that point. And that's where we found out so many of them that we didn't know he had done were still here. Letters of reference from pretty much every 
everybody in Waco who was anybody at the time, and then photographs, original Gildersleeve photographs of all these buildings. So it not only gave us a good view of his career, the photographs gave us a record of what the buildings looked like when they were new Mm -hmm. and before they were changed or altered or remodeled or modernized over the years. So as we were able to do some work on some of those buildings, uh, we had a good record of of what the original building really looked like, Mm -hmm. which is very helpful. I often say if if Milton Scott had never lived, I would have never had a career because so many of the things that I got to do were rooted in his original career. Go ahead and establish for us uh, those that are hearing Milton Scott's name for the first time, kind of what period he worked and, and a little bit about kind of his personality. Yeah, Milton Scott was, was born in New Orleans in 1872. His father died when he was 11, and so he and his mom and his sister moved here from New Orleans in uh, 1883, and I think they had relatives living in the Waco area, so they came here for that reason. And so he started working as a carpenter's apprentice. I'm not sure who for, but at the age of 16. So he got a a very very early indoctrination into the mechanical side and maybe the craftsmanship side of architecture and building. He had relatives that were uh, shipbuilders, and one of his uncles, I believe, had put together a, a, or received a patent for a some mechanical device that Otis Elevator actually still uses. <laughs> so he, he personally had a background that came out of a very technical construction-oriented profession. But by uh, the late 1800s, he was working as a draftsman for W.W. Larmor, actually started his career as a draftsman for S.P. Herbert, who was an architect here in Waco prior to the 1900s. Then he worked for W.W. Larmore for probably six years or so. He never went to architecture school, so all of his knowledge and and, uh, uh, development as an architect was learned at the hands of other uh, architects who who taught him pretty well. But his career lasted working from one architect to another until about 1913 or so. And then at that point, he pretty much settled into his own practice without partners and uh, just had a two or three draftsmen working for him. The only thing, it's strictly speculation, the only thing I can surmise about his early part of his career because it seemed like every, anywhere from every two to four to six years, he, he moved in and out of one office to the next. But I think that may have been less about his employer letting him go and more about going where the work was. Uh-huh. And he may have also been somebody that the other architects recognized as having talent and ability, and he was sought after. Mm-hmm. That's strictly speculation on my part. Well, he's pretty prolific. I mean, I've seen very much. The, the list of, of buildings he's involved in, uh, and he's doing a lot of work. Yes, he did. Mm-hmm. And and many of the commercial structures he did were, were very large buildings for their day. So he had a very nice career, very fulfilling and rewarding career uh, doing the work that he did. John told me, Milton Scott's son, John told me that... Uh, Every summer, 
uh, Milton would send his wife and his two kids, John and, and his sister, to Colorado for the summer to get out of the heat of Waco and go to Estes Park and live there for the summer while Milton stayed here and you know did the work he had. So obviously, obviously, yeah, obviously <laughs> he was he was making a good living to be able to afford his family that that sort of luxury. He died in 1933, so he was really 60 years old when he passed away, and he had congestive heart failure. So John, Milton's son, was 16 or 17 years old when his father died. So his memories of his dad's career are more wrapped up in the kinds of things that a young teenager would know and understand uh, versus what an adult might be able to tell. Uh, but the things he talked about, uh, Milton said he was a chain smoker. That probably contributed to his, his health issues. He was a perfectionist. That probably didn't help his health issues either. <laughs> but he was very well respected. And the letters of reference that I have copies of, every single one of them mentioned less about his ability as a designer and more about his character being someone who was uh, was honest, had integrity, really was very exacting in his specifications and his drawings. So all the kinds of things I think any of us, regardless of our career, would want our clients to be saying about us at some point. And that, plus what memories John had of him, gave me a pretty good idea of the kind of man he was. Yeah. John told a story when... Um, I believe it was when Waco High, down on Columbus Street, when it was being built, and Milton Scott, along with uh, T. Brooks Pearson, they were the architects that, that did the building. Milton Scott had suspicions that the contractor was cutting corners on some of the concrete that was being put into the building, but he never could catch the guy the contractor cutting corners because when he would show up, everything would appear to be like it should be, except he always noticed what looked like the same empty bags of cement just laying around. <laughs> not not newer ones every time, just the same ones time after time after time. So he actually went one day and climbed up in a tree about two blocks away from the construction site with a <laughs> pair of binoculars and watched until he convinced himself that, yes, the contractor had been cutting corners and then confronted the guy and got it straightened out. For all the things I've done in my career, I've never climbed up in never the tree done that and on watched a project. the construction from a, with a pair of binoculars. You might That's nowadays, dedication you might right could there. do that with a drone. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, he, he just he was sure he was right, but he needed proof, and he went to that length to to find it now that that's more of an anecdotal thing but uh but john said he remembered his dad doing that well it definitely reveals about something about his personality uh, well yeah. yeah uh and and the way that his clients responded to him also with and probably as a direct result of that the school board was concerned then with the construction of the high school so to test the concrete floors and the structure they took bales of cotton and stacked them up on the floors in different areas and kept stacking until they ran out of cotton bales and they never did fail, so they were convinced, yeah, everything was okay. So they had, you know, not necessarily 
scientific means of doing things, but they had very practical ways of <laughs> well, assuring themselves that it that it worked, that everything was okay. I know enough about Waco that that in the fall there'd be plenty of cotton. There'd be bales plenty of cotton. <laughs> yeah, and a bale is probably uh, I think 550 pounds or something like that. So. You know, once you stack up several of them, you can pretty much decide, yeah, it's going to be all right. <laughs> so is this the same structure that's still there that's apartments now? Yes. Okay. Yes. It was built originally in 1912, and then it was added on to, there's, the building is sort of an E-shape, and there's a, the main part of the building is parallel to Columbus Avenue and faces Columbus. That's the part that was built in 1912. Then there's a wing that runs parallel to 8th Street and one that runs parallel to 9th Street. And those were added like in 1915 and, and 1917, you know, somewhere in that time period. Then there was another wing that ran across the back that sort of connected those individual wings together. And then a gymnasium that was built in 1929. It was built over, over many years. One thing that I found in doing the research that I did, we were asked multiple times to do feasibility studies on that building for different uses. Developers who were looking at at turning it into, uh, well, there's a group that was brought in by the General Services Administration. They were gonna turn that building into the new VA Regional Center uh, so we did a feasibility study for that. The school district actually looked at it at one time, consolidating all of their administrative offices there, which I think would have been a great use for that building. We did a feasibility study for that. Well, in all of that research about the building, including looking up old newspaper articles about when it was being built, I came across one that said, if you remember, at about that time, TCU was located here in Waco, but it was in the process. Ran, yeah. Yeah, it was in the process of leaving Waco and moving to Fort Worth. Well, the Board of Regents of TCU voted to give the TCU flagpole to Waco High School to be their flagpole because th- that school was just being completed and getting ready to open. I have exhausted everything I can find trying to determine if the flagpole that is still there is actually that flagpole. It's it's a fairly nondescript flagpole, so there's nothing about it that hints that it belonged to TCU at one point. I've never seen a, a photograph of the flagpole on the TCU campus that I could compare. So it's just one of those things that may or may not be but they did vote to give it to Waco High to use as their flagpole on the school when it opened. So what do you think? <laughs> don't you boy, just have to cut it open and count the rings? <laughs> and the, and the... I want to say, boy, it's taxing my memory now. I want to say there was some little plaque that I saw. Don't recall if it was actually related to the flagpole or some something around the flagpole indicating this was a gift of such and such class. So it's possible that the flagpole may have been replaced at some point later by one of the graduating classes. There's just, there's no way to tell. I, I want to romanticize it to the point where, yeah, that's the one. It's <laughs> a good story. But it, that's about all you can make out of it because there's no real evidence that, uh, that it remains. I yeah. choose to believe. So, so because that building sits vacant for a long time as well, just like the... 
the yeah. Dr. Pepper building you were right. talking about sitting by. Right. But, so it's a neat project that's there now, that adaptive reuse. Yes, and, I'm, I'm yeah. very thankful that they were able to... Uh, you know, bring it back to a use that that is uh, that's very needed, because I hate to see old buildings just mm-hmm. deteriorate to the point where there's no opportunity to do anything with them. And they do reach a point after a while if they've sat vacant for very long that you just have to say goodbye to them. The name of the publication that you put together is Milton W. Scott's Waco. So let let's imagine we're driving through downtown listening to this podcast. <laughs> what what would be some structures that we might want to look out for on the landscape that would be a Scott structure? There are a handful of homes as you approach downtown. The residents that the Junior League occupies on 26th and Austin. The Clifton House? Yes. The Clifton House is a Milton Scott design. Further down on Columbus, around 15th and Columbus, was a house that was built for Louis Miguel of the Goldstein Miguel Department Store Company. That was used for a while by the Freeman House, Mm -hmm. Freeman Center, I guess. Then it was converted not too long ago into a bed and breakfast. I think it may be up for sale and may have even sold to a private owner now. I'm not sure. But as you come more into downtown, you pass... Uh, several churches. I think First Lutheran Church, First Baptist Church downtown, the home that belonged to Madison Cooper that the Cooper Foundation has their offices in across from the library on, on 18th Street. The Dr. Pepper Building, Dr. Pepper Museum. Within a short distance of the Dr. Pepper Museum is the what was known as the Southwest Drug Building that uh, currently is uh, owned by insurers of Texas. There was the Barron's Drug Building, which now are the Barron's Lofts. There was a church on 2nd and Webster, which is no longer there, built for St. Paul AME Church. I, I was heavily involved in doing some restoration and expansion of that building for the congregation. Unfortunately, they were just unable to undertake a project of that magnitude. But what always impressed me about that church, uh, and it was a very handsome building that had sort of a mission style of architecture. Again, it was done in 1913. This is 50 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. And here's a African-American congregation in the South hiring one of the more prominent architects in the community and building a structure like that, which was just always very impressive to me that that they were able to actually do that and contribute to the fabric of the downtown area, something as, as nice as that building was. It was torn down after the church relocated to another uh, facility. It was torn down and now I believe that's where the Indigo Hotel is. Okay, yeah. Uh, there's a hotel, I think it's mm-hmm. that one on that site and I I just sat on the curb and wept like a little baby (laughs) while they were tearing it down because it was such a neat neat building so whenever those old buildings get torn down you get pretty emotional about uh yeah part of it is so many of them were done by Milton Scott and I feel like I have such a connection with him Mm -hmm. but you just see a piece of of Waco disappearing and the reality is most likely and this is not an indictment of what gets built in its place, but most likely what gets built in its place is not going to have the the impact on the fabric of the community that those buildings had when they were built. 
So when they get repurposed into something like the Baron Lofts, that sits better with you. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and the, the developer who did the Baron's Loft, he added some a couple of stories to the top of the original building. I thought he did a very nice job with that in being able to look at the building and discern what was the original building and what was new. I mean, that, that's something in historical architecture that we struggle with. Uh, he just, he, he seemed to be very, very sensitive to to that building. It was a fairly straightforward warehouse type of design, but it's, uh, I'm glad it, it remains. And, and same way with the insurers of Texas in the Southwest Drug Building. The uh, Southwest Drug Building, I, I took a tour of it once, and one of the highlights of that was the Prohibition era vault yes. for alcohol in the basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and knowing Tom as well as I do, uh, I, yeah, I can understand that. It's unlocked now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know the other thing that a lot of people don't realize: some of the buildings, like the Southwest Drug Building, the Barons Building, they are not so ornate that they're pigeonholed into a a period of time in terms of what type of architecture was popular at that time. So you may see a building that's just fairly straightforward. I don't want to say it's nondescript, but it's, it's fairly straightforward in its appearance. And then what's impressive is when you figure out this, this building's over 100 years old. Mm. The Southwest Drug Building, it was built in more than one phase, but the initial phase was built in like 1915. And, and Barron's was probably somewhere around that same era, five or six years later. You know, they, you can look at an old Victorian building and decide, well, yeah, that came from this era. These are not quite as easy to put into a, an architectural era as far as style goes. But they're really, they were really well built because mm-hmm. they're still here. They're still they're here, still yeah. Used. And that may answer a question that I was interested in asking about I mean, as you as you look building to building, do you develop kind of an idea of a Scott style in doing it, or was it much more client driven? I think it may have been client driven for the most part. the uh, The building that the Dr Pepper Museum is in is a Richardsonian Romanesque style of architecture, which was very popular in the late 1800s. But styles that were popular in Chicago and New York and and St Louis in the late 1800s. It took a few years for all that to migrate as far south as Texas. So these styles were being picked up and and utilized a little later than when they were elsewhere. I'm I'm looking at Randy's fashion sense. I I, I think what you're saying is right. (laughs) Yes, the style of that building, and it's, it's somewhat similar to the style of First Baptist Church. There's, there's some similar details on it, but I can't say specifically where that inspiration for that style came from. Mr. Lazenby, who, who owned the company that ultimately became the Dr. Pepper Company, it was originally the Circle A Ginger Ale Company. In fact, that building was built to be the Circle A Ginger Ale bottling plant. He, he was a, a fairly strong and dynamic personality, so some of the push to that particular style may have originated with him. But I think Milton Scott executed it very well. And it's still one of the more handsome, older structures downtown. But it's not typical of 
many of the other structures that he that he did. So what are some of the characteristics of the Dr. Pepper Museum that really stand out to you as somebody who, you know, you're an architect? There's a number of things that are just that most people might not realize. The brick that's used on that building is a little bit larger than the normal brick that we use today. So the mortar joints are really pencil thin. What looks on that building like stone around the archways of the, of the larger windows and, and different windows up on the second floor is not really stone, it's plaster that was applied over the brick and then scored to look like individual stones and the surface of it rusticated a little bit to give a stone appearance. I don't think that's, that's authentic in terms of the style. I think that may have been more living in Waco, Texas. It may have been a lot more difficult to get stone like that here. And it was a way to get the look and maybe even a less expensive alternative to do it that way. First Baptist Church has some of that same on it. The old uh, Sanger Avenue School that, that burned down several years ago had very similar detail on it, even though the building was a, a little bit different style. We just still have the archway. Uh, yeah, what, what's building, up with that? The building sitting there. They're hoping <laughs> well, to incorporate it. In you, you can something. blame me for that. When oh, yeah? The, when the city, was, the city was tearing down the building after it had burned, and it was it was uh, it was not only an eyesore at that point it was a it was a hazard, but I did suggest, maybe rather strongly, that if there was a way they could save the uh, the entrance that was on the 17th or 18th Street end of the building that might be able to be incorporated into some other group of buildings that that eventually get built on that site. And, and they agreed to do that. Now, it's sat there long enough like this. It's starting to have its own issues. And I don't know if it'll ever have an opportunity to be incorporated into something else. We, we did some studies for that. There's a mystery to it, though. I mean, I noticed that when I moved here six years ago. And I've always thought it'd be a really cool place to do some photography. Because it yeah. just looks so odd, this ornate well, archway just sitting it, there it by does. itself. It's, it's kind of the Waco, uh, Waco version of Stonehenge, sitting, <laughs> sitting out there the way it does. That's a great idea. Yeah, though, well, yeah. yeah. there's a number of things that could be done on that site where I think that could be repurposed as part of the architecture or, or something. Like a park and it's a yes. gazebo or something? And yeah, and, and even to recall the fact that that was a school site at one time. But, uh, you know, every year that that goes by unused, it's a little more difficult to make that happen. And, and it is starting to show some, some wear and tear that, that might, it, it might never make it. But we're, we're keep our fingers crossed for now. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the list. Car places and churches survived. All the, <laughs> all the car places that he worked on, dealerships and, and uh, churches that he worked on. Yeah, a couple uh, of the car yeah. places have been, are being repurposed into some different things. Uh, there was a McDermott Automotive on um, Washington, yes. That has or is being uh, repurposed into something else. There was Central Motors down on Franklin, I believe. I think that has been or is in the process of being remodeled into something. So, I mean, he, he just, he was involved in a lot of different buildings and they're never, about the time you figure out, I think I've got his style figured out, then there's one that 
pops up that's totally different. And it's just, as an architect, I understand how you can get bored doing the same thing over and over and over again. So if, if he was having similar feelings and wanted to explore different ideas, uh, he certainly had the workload to allow him to do that. And because you had this 32 proposal, I mean, and he passes away in 33, it kind of is a career retrospective. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. At the time he passed away, a few years before, he had built Palm Court, which some people have said it was the first apartment building in Texas. And I don't know if that's the case or not. I know for reasons of community pride that Waco periodically would would want to say we have the first of this or the biggest of <laughs> we that. We do that a lot. Yeah. yeah. We have the tallest building. We have the longest suspension bridge. Well, there was a time when that was probably true. <laughs> as far as the, the first apartment building, I'm not sure. But he also built an apartment building on uh, 4th and Indiana, I believe. It's right a, a block or two south of Waco Drive. If you assume that 4th Street runs north and south, which is a horrible assumption to make about any streets in Waco, but (laughs) then this would be on the east side of 4th Street, about a block or so off of Waco Drive to the south. And he built that so he and his family could live there and then enjoy the income of the rental property. And again, this would have been in the very early 1930s, this may have been around 1932, but it was also in the very beginnings of the Depression. So I'm not sure if he was ever able for the last year or so of his life to enjoy much income from rental properties just because of the effects of the Depression on everybody uh, and employment and, and whatnot. But that's still there, and there are people living in there, living in those buildings currently. Yeah, Palm Court is an interesting structure. I think it's it's a uh, right near Pinewood, Randy, on Austin Avenue. You okay. drive by it all the time. Green, kind of old-looking uh, apartment right. structure. It's still called Palm Court Apartments. Mm-hmm. It, it's sort of a Tudor style of architecture. He did the same thing with the uh, Clifton Home on on Austin Avenue. So he went through a period of his career where, at least in the residential designs, he was doing more Tudor style. That's why I think think these things kind of came in and out of popularity. But you can see at different places in his career where he was very successful at incorporating that style into the buildings he did. And then as other styles became more prominent, he was able to to make that happen. You mentioned in your publication, uh, Waco has one of the uh, probably the ultimate litmus test on how well built a downtown building is uh, because of the tornado. Tornado, mm-hmm. and and you you point out the fact that that his structures survive. I don't know if we loses we lose any of his because of the tornado. I'm not aware any. I know that there are buildings around that that don't survive to today, but I don't know if the tornado was the reason. But when you when you look at the locations of a lot of those buildings in and around the path of the tornado. Several of them were damaged, but they weren't destroyed. The building the Dr. Pepper Museum is in suffered some pretty significant damage, but it was repaired and continued to operate. It couldn't match the brick, though. No, and in fact, but that that's kind of neat, too. Yeah, There's it is. A couple of things Character. about the, the brick on that building. The facade that was damaged significantly was along the Mary Avenue side of the building. There was a cupola on that side. It was it was damaged. The roof was tile. 
it was damaged to the point where they had to re-roof and they, they put it back with shingles. The brick that was used to repair the building on that side was similar in color. It was also not the same size. It was closer to the size of brick today. So when you look at the mortar joints, and if you can imagine how mortar joints in a brick wall, how they all align horizontally and vertically, the horizontal lines seem to match because the brick is the same height, but the length of the brick is different. So the vertical joints sort of meander all over the place through that repair. And then when we did the restoration work in 1989-1990, we had new brick made that was the size of the original brick, and we used that to put back some of the features along the top part of the parapet of the building. So those brick match the brick down below and the brick in between don't. So <laughs> so the mortar joints sort of meander, the color's different. After it was repaired at the end of the, after the tornado, the Dr. Pepper Company made the decision to just paint the building, paint the brick. And it was painted sort of a buff gray color and stayed, stayed that way until we did the restoration work. And when we got all the paint off, then that, that scarring from the tornado became a lot more prominent and there were some discussions about should we leave it should we replace it we ultimately decided the best thing was to leave it because it's part of the history of the building definitely and it's perhaps the only significant scar from the tornado on any building downtown mm. so it, it has uh, it has its own story sort of wrapped up in the history of the building and uh, I'm glad we I'm glad we left it but to people that don't know, just seeing it might wonder, that just looks really odd and not know why it's that way. But, and I was two and a half years old when the tornado hit, and there's, there's random things I can remember about the tornado and the aftermath, but there's a, a lot of it that I only know because I've read of it. In looking at his buildings, this question of how well built they were, I mean, is there something in the way he's engineering the buildings that are different than maybe other structures that were built about the same time? I tend to want to believe that his background, particularly his family background in shipbuilding, elevator mechanisms, his early apprenticeships as a carpenter's apprentice, that all that played a role in how he put together a building from a technical standpoint. That's sort of my view. I don't know if there's anything you can find or point to that would say anything different than that. Typically, during that time period, buildings weren't necessarily engineered by an outside consultant. Mm -hmm. The architect really was so well-versed at all the aspects of construction that they knew what to do. And, of course, he had a great deal of training under W.W. W. Larmore and W.C. Dotson and some of the more prominent architects that preceded him by a few years. So I think he learned his craft well. But there were a lot of limitations because if you're building buildings that use wood for the primary structure, there's some real limits as to just how far you can span, how tall you can build. He at least seemed to understand what those limits were. And, and I think that played a role in his buildings being surviving the tornado. He didn't, he didn't push the envelope beyond what technically was feasible. Yeah. Again and again, I come back to the, 
the beliefs. They just seem to have been very well-built, solid structures. And had the tornado taken a different path, maybe maybe all of his buildings would be gone and, and all of Roy Lane's buildings would still be. <laughs> Who knows? We, we just don't know. So on that note, around the same time Milton Scott's working, there's this young upstart coming into town. So we were kind of talking about the intersection of Roy E. Lane's career and Milton Scott's career. So what, what more can you say about that? Roy Lane, and again, I haven't done near the research on him, mm-hmm. but what I know of him from things that I was able to find and from things that Milton's son told me about Roy Lane. Roy Lane was about 12 years younger, so he mm-hmm. came to Waco a little later. He was a college-educated architect with a with an engineering background as well so he came with a different skill set the things that i have seen of roy lane's that still survive and photographs i've seen of other buildings that he designed he was an incredible designer he had an artistic flair that i'm not sure milton scott had one building that still remains that i absolutely love and it was it was one of my favorites long before i even knew roy lane designed it was the St. Francis Catholic Church down close to the river. Mm-hmm. It's, just a, it's just a great structure. I find myself looking at some of these buildings and being envious that will I ever have <laughs> that opportunity in my career to do something like that? And if I do, am I good enough to do something like that? But I think he did the Hippodrome. He did a number of homes. He and Milton Scott apparently were in practice together briefly, or maybe around 1908. And that was a year or two before Roy Lane got involved in the construction of the amicable building that was done by Sanguinette and Stotts out of Fort Worth. He had more of a, a meteoric career here in Waco. He ultimately moved to Dallas, and he, and he passed away in Dallas in the mid-50s. None of these guys seem to have lived to a, a ripe old age. I, <laughs> I think Roy Lane was 72, and... Milton Scott was 60, Larmore was 65, and maybe that was typical of the, in that generation, I, I don't know, but you, you don't see any of them living to be 90 years old and whatever. But Roy Lane was, in my opinion, as good as any of them in terms of the artistic nature of the designs he put together. He seemed to have, from what I've heard, sort of a flamboyant personality. He shows up in almost every photograph that you have of gatherings of people from that era, and he always seems to be wearing a white seersucker suit. He's got a handlebar mustache, and he just he just has a flair about him that makes him stand out in a crowd, which I think is, is not necessarily a bad thing for an architect, but he certainly had, uh, he, he had the ability to back it up. I don't know in terms of their personality, how well they meshed in partnership together. There was a difference in their age. Again, Milton Scott seemed to be very focused and serious. Roy Lane was certainly serious about his career, but he just seemed to be a little more, just have more flair about him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that they were, their partnership maybe lasted only a year or so. I don't know if that was the result of any issues they had or just the nature of the work. But uh, Lane went on and had a spectacular career on his own. So uh, so I think that's I think that's neat. When we had uh, Horace on talking about Jules Bledsoe, you know, he had never heard him actually play his music. But he said when he saw the notes and the music that he'd written, that he felt like he was talking to someone that he'd never met. 
Do you feel that way when you see some of Milton Scott's designs and buildings as an architect, like you understand more about him and his personality by seeing what he's designed? I do. I tell you one of the one of the things that I can't help but feel. I know when I'm working on a project, now there are, there are certain drawings you draw that are, are details of how different parts of the building fit together. That's the very technical part of it. But there's other drawings you draw that show what the building looks like or how it how it flows from room to room. And I know when I'm doing that, particularly on the ones where I'm drawing what it looks like, I get really excited. And I find myself almost unable to wait until it is built so I can <laughs> see it. When I look at the buildings of Roy Lane and, and Milton Scott and, and others, W.C. Dotson, I can, I can pretty much project myself into the same feelings they must have been having mm. when they were drawing these things because they draw the same views, the same drawings that we draw. They just they did it a little differently in terms of the tools they used. But they had to stop periodically and just look at it and think, man, I can't wait till this is built. This is going to be really cool. <laughs> and that may not have been the way they said it, but that's the feeling they had. Yeah. And so I, I have those same feelings. And when we were working on the, on the building for the Dr. Pepper Museum and drawing the, the exterior of the building for the notations we were making of different, different things that were being repaired and restored, I mean, I had the same, I had to have had the same feelings of excitement that he had when he was drawing it for the very first time. Mm. You just you just think and, and so much of it, even though some of those things were were related to style, the style says it has to do this, so I do this. But you still look at different elements that he inserted or, or executed and think, yeah, he, he I wonder how many iterations of that he went through before he settled on this one as the one to do. It's hard not to get caught up in all that, those same feelings that I'm sure they must have had, every one of them. And when it finally clicked, they're like, ah, yes, yeah, this, this is, is it. it. This is it. <laughs> one thing I thought was interesting, and we kind of talked about this before we started recording, is that nowadays computers can do a lot of this work for you, and back then you really had to be an artist for this stuff. It's impressive not only from their ability to draw, but if you know the types of drafting instruments that they used, you're even more impressed by it. I learned in junior high how to draw using what was called a, a ruling pen. A ruling pen, that's also where I learned how to curse, by the way. <laughs> a ruling pen is a... It's, it's a like, for lack of a better way to describe it, it's like a, a caliper. And with a little screw that you turn, the pieces of the caliper move closer together or farther apart, depending on the thin or thickness of the line that you're trying to draw. What you do is you take an eyedropper of ink and you squirt it into the space between the two calipers. And then you draw. What invariably happens is about halfway through your drawing, all the ink that's in the caliper runs out the end of the caliper and you've got a big blob of ink on your drawing. <laughs> or depending on the paper you might be drawing on, the calipers are so sharp that they begin to pull up fibers of paper and it clogs the tip. And then every time you want to draw a line that's 
thicker or thinner than the one you've drawn. You have to turn the little set screw and adjust the calipers. It's a very tedious and labor-intensive way to draw. There's and no undo either, is there? And it's Yeah, it's fraught <laughs> with peril. So when you look at the drawings that these guys did, the ones they did in ink, they were utilizing these kinds of instruments to do it and still produce something on some kind of regularity. They didn't have unlimited time to, you know, they were on schedules. So, so to be able to draw this way and produce something and the drawings are just so beautiful in their execution, there's a whole level of appreciation of it that, that I have that some people may not have. I still do a lot of hand drafting, but the instruments I use are a lot more user-friendly than, than what they did. And of course, now with computers, you pretty much are unlimited as to what you can execute. But you don't necessarily have to be an artist to be able to do it. You just have to have a good computer. So it, it's just the change of the profession over the years. People who are new to Waco or haven't been here that long, like me, I've only been here six years, even though I've got the family history. What is the message that Milton Scott sends to future generations, to Wacoans of the future? For me, knowing the things that I know about him and his life, which I got primarily from the letters of reference that I read that were written for him, that there's never a time when honesty and integrity and good character goes out of style. Hmm. Uh, regardless of what you're doing, what profession you are in, if you lose that, then you've lost something that's very significant. If you were expecting an answer related to architecture styles and the future of architecture, I don't know that I have that for you. But I do think that being able to have clients in your career that will step up and say those kinds of things Mm. about your character that's the legacy that outlives anything else because mm. he passed that on to his his son, his grandchildren, and I would like to think that our profession is such that that's, that's not being lost with each successive generation, that, that that's still something that people place a lot of, a lot of emphasis on. You know, when you're, when you're designing a project for somebody, they are putting in your hands a great deal of trust. Mm-hmm. You're spending their money. It's really not your building because mm-hmm. when you're done, you're done. They're the ones that are still going to be going in and out of it every day, living in it, working in it, going to school in it or whatever, worshiping in it. If you've done that work with integrity, I think that affects the, the end product as much as, as anything that you could do. I say that about Milton Scott. That's not to say the others from his generation didn't have it. I just know more specifically that he did. Mm-hmm. I would say from what I've heard you tell me about Milton Scott, that it also, it says that Waco has really good bones. Like we're going to be here for a while. Yeah. His stuff's been here for a while. We, we still have a lot of these great pieces from, you know, hundred years ago or more. And so Waco is going to be good in the future too. I, I, yes, I think that's a, a very astute observation. Unfortunately, direction that architecture took not too many years ago was it was less about building things built to last and building things that were just good enough. And I hate to say this about developers because I think there are some very quality things being done by developers now. There, there are certain aspects of development where I'm going to build this, I'm going to own it for five years, I'm going to sell it. 
Whatever happens to it after that, that's not my issue. I'm building something else. Unfortunately, whether it's intentional or not, that pressure on the budget leads to decisions that are not necessarily, in my opinion, long-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for somebody to be sitting here 100 years from now saying this building or that building that was built in 2020, I don't know how many of those they're going <laughs> to they're going to be able to yeah, point to. That's a good point. Now, that Burger King has been there for 100 <laughs> yeah, years. Yeah, that McDonald's it was however certain institutions like Baylor University are building buildings that will be here at that time. MCC may be doing some of that. Some of the churches may be doing some of that. But a lot of things that get built are being built on a much shorter shelf life than the way it was. When you look at something like a warehouse that ultimately becomes the building that Insurers of Texas is in, it's hard to imagine you would build a warehouse in 2020 that in 2120 would still be here and mm-hmm. could be utilized in a completely different purpose. It doesn't compute to me mm-hmm. to think that those kinds of things will, will happen. I keep going back to this image, uh, BJ, of you uh, sitting on the corner weeping. Uh, <laughs> as a lifetime Wacoan, I, I do want to ask what other ones made you weep. I don't want to take a dark turn here, but, <laughs> but, but what, what, what have we lost that you thought was just, a, was just tragic? In 1966, and I was 16 years old, there was a home on 12th or 13th in Austin that was built for William Cameron, a beautiful Victorian. It was designed by W.W. Larmore, and I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that it was just a really a strikingly beautiful structure. It had been vacant for, for several years. The original family that owned it had died off or moved away or whatever. The story is that William Cameron built that in secret for his wife because when it was being built, the town had not grown really that far west, and so it was sort of out in the middle of nowhere. That, that's all. It was vacant, and there was all these rumors about it being haunted. So a local DJ for the pop station that we all listened to as kids was going to spend the night in the home one night to determine whether it was haunted or not. And I don't know if I've got the timing of this correctly or not, but either that night or shortly thereafter, it caught fire and burned. And it just it burned up. It was sad, even though I, I didn't have this necessarily the same reaction I did when the church was torn down. But I remember feeling that this was, this was a sense of loss. This was something in my life that was gone and wouldn't be back. And it was unique and beautiful, and it, it, even in its vacant state, it still contributed something in a very positive way to the community, and, and it was gone. And it just randomly things like that that, that happened. I, I've designed a building that has since been remodeled and after that torn down and it was like is my career <laughs> gone on that long that now i'm seeing things i designed disappear i mean that's just that's sort of i guess the, the natural progression of progress in a community but there are a few like that that pop up that are just so spectacular they were appreciated when they were new they were still appreciated much much later and when they disappeared to think that somebody could drive down austin avenue and never know that that was there. 
that's that's a loss. It really is. Things like that, and I don't know how many of them I could point to, but but there are those. Yeah, that's I've seen just pictures of the exterior of that home, and it was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. it really was. I d- I did mention that Milton Scott had been involved in, in a handful of projects, and and I want to clarify something. He was in partnership with an architect named Glenn Allen, 1903, 1904-1905. Glenn Allen was another version of, of Roy Lane in terms of his design ability. I know nothing about him personally, but you could tell from the things he designed, he was very artistic. He designed the Madison Cooper home on uh, across the street from the public library on on Washington and 18th. He also was the the principal designer on First Baptist Church downtown built in 1905. But then Glenn Allen left Waco and moved to California. And Milton Scott at that point basically took over his practice and saw through to completion Madison Cooper's home and First Baptist Church. To the point where when Milton had those letters of reference written by former clients, both of them gave him credit for the for the building. But I think in actuality he was involved in the in the project, maybe involved in the design of each, but certainly heavily involved during the construction after Glenn Allen had left and moved. And the way that these architects were associating with each other during that time frame from about 1895 or so on through about 1915, 1920. It's hard to keep track of who did what because they were constantly in and out of practice with one another. And I know uh, from the time period when, uh, when I had a partner in my office and people working for me, the designs were so collaborative that I probably get credit for a lot of things I didn't actually do just because I was more of the public face of our of our office. But everybody was having input into things. And sometimes it would be at the end of a project, it would be it's our project and it would be next to impossible to pick out and say, well, I did this part, I did that part kind of thing. And I suspect that was probably the same thing going on back then. That's because a lot of the work was just project-based. So as a project would come up, maybe a team would assemble around that particular project. Possibly. I I really don't know, but it it would make sense if that were the case. Of the partnerships that Milton Scott had with W.W. Larmore, Larmore was a good 30 years older than than Milton Scott. Uh, W.C. Dotson was older than that, older than Milton Scott. Dotson is, uh, he did a number of courthouses. I think he did 13 courthouses in Texas. Uh, he did one in Coriel County. I think he did one in Waxahachie, Ellis County. He did one in Denton. I've actually gone through the one in Denton, and it's, it's spectacular. There's a lot of similarity one to the other because they all followed a very similar plan with a, a clock tower thing in the middle and very symmetrical design, but they were all different at the same time. So Dotson had a, a more regional, uh, in fact, maybe even more statewide reputation than the other local architects did. But he and Milton Scott were, were together for a while. So, you know, unless you're just a complete doofus, you, you've got to learn from these people being in association with them, and particularly the ones that are older than you, whose experience and, and whatnot is is very important to the development of your own career 
Maybe that's a lesson we can take from Milton Scott as well, Randy. Yeah. Don't be a doofus. <laughs> Don't be a doofus. Uh, you can apply that to any profession, I think. Before we started recording, you told me an interesting story. So how did you decide to become an architect? It's interesting to me. You seem to think it's interesting to you, but we may be the only two people who feel that way. Oh, I think it's great. <laughs> Waco's my hometown. All of my mother's family, all of my family was here. We, we'd been here since 1870. So aunts, uncles, grandparents, we all lived here together. We all lived within walking distance of one another. So my mom's family especially would get together at the drop of a hat, and it'd be 35, 40 people, and we'd crowd into somebody's home, and the adults would play dominoes. The kids would all play whatever. One evening, we were together at my aunt and uncle's home, and my aunt and uncle said, uh, hey, all you kids, let's get in the car. We're going to take you down to a local little convenience store. I'll give each one of you a dime, and you can buy a comic book. Great. So we all piled into their station wagon and went down to the Park and Save convenience store, and we all ran in. They were all older than me, so they were they were running over me to get to the comic book rack <laughs> and grabbing all the ones that I would have picked if I had gotten there first. So, the, <laughs> you know, the Mickey Mouse and the Donald Duck went and the Archie went, and, and, and then they're all getting ready to leave and run back out, so I had to grab something. And there was a book that caught my attention. It was a, a magazine of houseplants. <laughs> I thought, this looks cool, so I grabbed it, and we're all running up to the counter, and, you know, I got this, here's my dime, I got this, here's my dime. And we ran and got back in the car, and we were going back to my aunt and uncle's home. And everybody's asking, you know, what'd you get, what'd you get? And my older sister, who was seven years older than me, said, what'd you get? I was eight years old at the time. She said, what'd you get? And I said, I got this. And I showed it to her, and she just looked at it. She goes, you moron. She said, you stole this. This book is 50 cents, not a dime. I tell everybody my career in architecture started with the commission of a misdemeanor at the age of eight years old. Uh, but I looked at that. And just everything in it made sense to me. Perspective drawings of homes, plan, floor plan drawings. And I said, that's how you draw a door. That's how you draw a window in plan. That's how you nest closets back to back or next to each other where bedrooms go. It just all made sense. And so mm. I would sit there and draw these, redraw these floor plans or come up with my own designs. And it just, I couldn't imagine doing anything else after I saw that. I'd always been able to draw to some degree, but I never thought that you know, all these buildings and things you go in and out of, somebody actually plans how that happens. They just, they're just there. And this was sort of the gateway for me is, oh, somebody draws this. It's, even more than that, somebody gets paid to draw this. This is, <laughs> this is all right. This is pretty mm -hmm. cool. So that's how I really got interested in architecture. And from that point on, that was there was no question I was going to do that for the rest of my life. That is really interesting. I hadn't heard that story. I wonder what the statute of limitations is. On, on misdemeanors? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, fortunately, Park and Save is not around any longer, so <laughs> so I think I'm in the clear. Nobody wept when Park and Save was <laughs> No. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to think that their profit depended on me paying the correct amount for a magazine. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, BJ, for coming on the podcast. I've learned so much. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it a great deal. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco
As of this recording, the holidays are right around the corner, and nothing fits better in a stocking than some freshly canned Brotherwell beer. That's right, all your favorites are back in stock for the holiday season. Pick up a six-pack or two at Brotherwell Brewing on Historic Bridge Street. Brotherwell Brewing, the official beer of the Waco History Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. The Brazos at Waco I once made in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El Bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio